He is risen indeed. Today is the day that we remember. Today is the day that we rejoice, that we sing, that we celebrate, that our Lord Jesus has conquered the grave, that our Lord Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave, that our guilt, our shame, our condemnation has been removed, that our sin has been overcome, and that our future is certain, secure, and guaranteed because of one man. What's his name? Jesus. What's his name? Jesus. Tell him his name again. Jesus. And we are here to celebrate Jesus Christ. The word good news literally means the gospel. And that's what we want to talk about today, the gospel and the good news. I don't know about you, but how many of you, 2020, you could have gone for some good news, right? The last year, the last year was a year filled with bad news and fake news and, oh, my God, I can't believe this is still going on news. Everywhere we look, 2020 is a dumpster fire, amen? Amen. Like in the church, we have a saying that the best is yet to come. Well, the world kept watching and waiting, and it never came. Okay, because we don't have hope and trust in what the world trusts in. We have good news because of the word of God. And so we want to bring some good news today. 21, 2021, it's not looking much better though, amen? I mean, it's just kind of the way it is. It goes from one day to the next, and you're checking your social media, your feed, you're scrolling through Facebook, you're watching the news, and it's just one thing after the another. Bad news after bad news after bad news. Well, good news for you. You're at church, and today at church, we're going to be talking about some good news. And the good news is that Jesus lived. The good news is that Jesus died and that Jesus was buried. And the good news is, is that Jesus on the third day resurrected from the grave and Jesus is alive and Jesus is still changing lives to this very day. That, my friends, is the good news. No matter what happened in 2020, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter what's happened over the last year, no matter what happened this week, that led you to this place this day, I want to let you know that Jesus Christ, he loves you, that Jesus Christ, he cares for you, that God sent his only begotten son, that whomsoever believe in him shall not die or perish, but they shall have eternal life in Jesus, and Jesus goes to the cross in our place, that Jesus lived the life that we never could live, the life that was without sin. You and me, we are not without sin. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I am perfect and without sin? If you do that, the person sitting next to you is going to elbow you in the rib cage because they brought you here and they know that it ain't true. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus comes and lives without sin. And Jesus dies on that cross. And because Jesus had no sin, death could not contain him. And Jesus, after three days, resurrected from that grave, overcoming the biggest fear that most people have in their lives, the fear of death, the fear of guilt, the fear of condemnation, the fear of shame. Jesus overcomes all those things through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. There is no one who is more significant than Jesus. 
love him, hate him, disregard him. You cannot do that because he is the most iconic. He is the most prolific. He is the most jeered and revered figure who has ever walked the face of this planet that we actually divide our history based upon his life. The two most famous holidays, Christmas, in which we celebrate his birth, and then Easter, which we celebrate his resurrection. We literally divide our calendar by the life of this man. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Jesus has been sung more songs too. More books have been written regarding him. More lives have been changed by him. More paintings have been painted of him than any other person in the face of this planet. Jesus is the most magnanimous. Jesus is the most momentous. Jesus is the most monumental, towering figure in all of human history. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering churches to worship, to sing, and to celebrate that Jesus Christ is our risen Lord, Savior, God, and King. And let me just tell you this. That in 2,000 years, no matter what goes on in this life, it pales in comparison to the resurrection of Christ. That 2,000 years later, we are still talking about a Galilean peasant, but here we are in downtown Beaumont with believers gathered in a room that's not even big enough to fit all of us because Jesus is alive. In 2,000 years, nobody's going to be talking about COVID but we're still going to be talking about Jesus. In 2,000 years, nobody's going to be talking about who you voted for president, but we're still going to be talking about Jesus. In 2,000 years, nobody's going to be asking if you got the vaccine or did you wear a mask or no mask. In 2,000 years, nobody's going to care about that. In 2,000 years, the only thing that's going to matter, the only thing that's going to be of importance, the only thing that is worth any significance is the decision that you make today in determining who is Jesus to you. Do you love Jesus? Do you serve Jesus? Have you surrendered your life and given your life to Jesus? Because on that, all of human history hangs. On that, your life, your future, your destiny, all hinges on this moment of the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to have a conversation with you about the resurrection. I want to have a similar conversation that I had with a a friend of mine last year at the very beginning of the pandemic. And we were sitting down and we were discussing. She was raised an atheist. She was not raised in church. Her parents wanted nothing to do in church. In fact, they taught her the opposite of Christianity. And she was invited, like some of you, by a friend here to redemption. And so she agreed that she would go. The first service, she didn't like it. She was like, I don't really like that. I don't really like that. But then... The friend was persistent, just like your friend today was persistent. She came back, and she began to make some friends, and she got connected with some people, and she joined a small group. And as we're discussing and talking, she's like, I'm not yet sure if I'm ready to become a Christian. I'm not sure if I'm yet ready to be baptized. I'm not sure if I'm ready. I don't know if I believe. I don't, I don't know enough to make that decision. And so we sat down, and we had a conversation. I said, well, what do you think about the resurrection? And as we began talking about the resurrection, it really opened her eyes to so many things about the Christian faith. Listen to me. We live in a day and age where people want to talk about a lot of different things. But they do so to sidestep the most important thing. What do you believe about the resurrection? 
When it comes to the Christian faith, people might say, oh yeah, well, what do you believe about politics? What do you believe about sexuality? What do you believe about morals and ethics? What do you believe about social justice? All that is is to sidestep the most important issue. What do you believe about the resurrection? All of those things are secondary or even tertiary things, but they sidestep the matter at hand, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Those of you who are skeptics or on the line of faith, let me explain something to you, that there are some things you will only understand on the other side of the resurrection. And so we had this conversation about Jesus living and dying, being buried, and after three days, rising from the dead. And I asked her, I said, well, what do you believe about the resurrection? And she said, Pastor Byron, based upon our conversation, I believe it's clear. I believe the facts are in, the case is clear. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose again. I said, if you believe that, then here's the good news. You're a Christian. She said, that's it? I said, yes, that's, that's it. We'll figure everything else later, but right now, the most important thing is, what do you believe about the resurrection? And she said, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I said, then you are saved, because that's the same thing the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has what? Raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you admit that you are a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart. You put your hope and trust and faith and bank your existence on Jesus. Then you will be saved that God has raised him from the dead and you will never be put to shame. Your sins will be forgiven. Your past will be erased. All of the guilt and condemnation will be cast as far as the east is to the west. You will get a new heart, new hope, new nature, new identity, and you'll discover what she did that you get a new community, a church that loves you, that's been praying for you and wants to experience life change through Jesus together with you. If you admit that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart and you confess him as your savior, you will be saved. On that day, she gave her life to Jesus. A few weeks later, we got to celebrate baptism with her as she stepped in those waters and she was baptized, and it all hinged upon a conversation about the resurrection. And so what I want to do today is I want to just talk to you about the resurrection. I might yell a little bit. I didn't yell at her. Okay, she's amazing, and we're just a conversation. But here we're at church, and I'm going to get a little fired up and passionate, and I'm going to yell just a little bit because I want you to know how excited I am about the good news that Jesus rose from the grave. And so we're going to talk today about the resurrection. And for those of you who are Christians, this is going to be really exciting for you. Okay, because you've already made the most important decision of your life in following Jesus. And so the things that I'm going to share with you today as a Christian, this is going to put confidence in your walk. This is going to put steel in your spine. This is going to put a song in your heart, and it's going to put a little pep in your step as we discuss some of these things. Because as Christians, I want you to understand something. That the resurrection, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's very important. The resurrection is the fact that establishes our faith. That the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is built by facts. 
that Jesus really lived. We're going to talk about that. Jesus really died. We're going to discuss that in great detail, that Jesus was buried and rose from the grave. Real, historical, verifiable facts that I'm going to present to you today that is just going to provide confidence for the faith that you already have. The resurrection is a fact, and this fact establishes our faith. For those of you who are Christians, we're going to worship and sing as we watch our brothers and sisters be baptized today. It is going to be a party because our faith is established by facts. Now, for those of you who are not Christians yet, because I'm going to get you today, I want you to really consider these claims. I want you to lean in. I want you to listen to. I want you to pay very close attention to the things that we're about to say because I'm going to present to you some facts that establish the Christian faith. And you're going to have to wrestle with these. You're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to be intellectually honest with yourself and come to a decision for yourself. What do you believe about Jesus? My job is to present to you the facts. Your job is to make a decision. You're going to have to figure out whether or not you believe or do not believe, whether you accept or whether you reject or whether you deny Jesus based upon the lack or the lack thereof of evidence or if you just do not want to follow him due to your own arrogance. Because for every one conversation I've had with a friend who accepted Jesus based upon the resurrection, I've had 10 conversations with friends who will give me the credence of the resurrection, but truthfully, they don't want to follow him, not because of a lack of evidence, but they don't want to surrender their life or will to anyone but themselves due to their own arrogance. You must make a decision why or why not. Do you believe? And that's what I'm going to present to you today. And you're thinking here, you're like, are you trying to convert me? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. You say, are you trying to lead me to Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. That's why your friend brought you here today, because they know you need Jesus. And Jesus is here to meet with you today because he knows that you need him too. So yes, I am trying to lead you to Jesus. I'm not trying to shove Jesus down your throat, but two things. One, you're in church, and that's just the way it goes here, okay? We talk about Jesus. You should have known that when you came here. Number two, if you only knew how much Jesus loves you, if you only knew how much God cares about you, if you only knew how much of a plan and a purpose that he has over your life, if you only knew what he has in store for you, then here's what you would be doing right now. You wouldn't even be waiting till the end of my message. You'd be raising your hand for salvation right now. You would be running down to the front of this altar to let the prayer team anoint you with oil. You would be jumping in that baptism water with all of your clothes on. If you only knew what we knew on this side, of the resurrection, you would be getting up out of your seat right now. But you're not, so I'm going to give you 10 reasons for you to believe in the resurrection. And here's the good news. You only need one reason. So pick whichever one you like. You only need one reason to believe in the resurrection, but I'm going to today give you 10, okay? First reason is this. Jesus, if you're taking notes, write it down. Jesus really lived. It's become popular today for people to say, I just don't really believe that Jesus lived. That Jesus was just a, he was just a myth. He was a, a fairy tale. He was a, a folklore. He was just a good story that we invented to be able to 
manipulate and control society and maybe tell some stories to our kids so they grow up and be good, decent, moral people. But I, I don't really believe that Jesus lived. It's like, how did you come to that conclusion? Because truthfully, there is no academic or scholar that would support that. You say, I don't know, Pastor Byron. I did some research. You say, where did you do your research at? YouTube University? Is that where you did it? YouTube University or its affiliate, Twitter Junior College? Is that where you got your information from? <laughs> right, just so you know, um, YouTube's a great place to watch cat videos and maybe learn how to change your oil. Probably not a good way to find a foundation to establish your existence upon. Twitter? Oh, Twitter? Yeah, okay. Don't, just delete it. It's not even important, okay? Just so you know, doing research on YouTube is the same thing as me cooking a Pop-Tart and saying I'm a pastry chef. Doesn't give you any credence, okay? Because there is no real scholarly or historical um, academics that would support the claim that Jesus never existed. And some of you are a little offended right now, so I'll go ahead and offend you with truth. Here's what the truth says. There is secular accounts of the life of Jesus documented in history. And one is from a man named Josephus Flavius. He writes in about 37 AD, okay? So think, long time ago, before Twitter and YouTube. And he is a Jewish historian who is charged to be able to investigate the early claims of Christianity. Just remember, the Jewish people were opposed to Jesus, and so later on, they hired Josephus to go in and investigate and infiltrate the early church to figure out why they're growing so fast. And here's what Josephus, he writes in 37 AD, now there was at this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, because Christianity was illegal. If it be lawful to call him a man who was a doer of wonderful works, what's that? That's miracles. And Pilate, let me go ahead and stop right here. If you're making something up, you don't use real people. Okay, the Bible says that Jesus was handed over to Pontius Pilate. Well, verifiable historical documents say Jesus was handed over to who? Pontius Pilate. Historical record proves the biblical truth. It goes on and says, Pilate, the suggestion of principle of men among us, condoned him to death and death on a cross. But Here's, here's what it says. But those who loved him did not forsake him. And here's the kicker. Here's the reason why. Because he appeared to them alive again when? On the third day. Verified historical truth. Secular history will prove that Jesus lived. Biblical history will also prove that Jesus will live. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they were all written within the lifetime of Jesus' followers himself. And they will testify that Jesus really lived and really did the things that he said that he did. But you need more proof? I'll give you some more proof. There is Pliny the Younger. There's also Tacitus. And there's Sauron, Roman historians within the first century that write about Jesus. And then there's the church fathers like Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin Martyr. All of this is found in a book by Mark Driscoll called Vintage Church, Timeless Answers to Timely Questions. You can go pick yourself up a copy. It's very helpful and resourceful for you. But that's just to say, biblical and historical verified truth that Jesus really lived. But I'll give you one more because you're still not convinced. Thomas Arnold, professor of modern history at Oxford University. Okay, just think about that. What does it mean he's from Oxford University? It means he's smarter than you. 
And here's what he writes. There is no one fact, because our faith is not just built on blind faith. Our faith is established by fact. He says this, there is no one fact in the history of mankind that is proved by better and fuller evidence than any sort of the fact and the claim that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Boom, shakalaka, shazam, mic drop, bazinga, put that in your pipe and smoke it, Jesus really lived. (laughs) Number two, Jesus, he really died. Now, you'll at this point say, I'll give you that Jesus lived, but I don't really think he died. Maybe it was a medical mystery. Maybe he was just really hurt and injured, and they just didn't really know the difference because they're ancient, primitive people. 2,000 years ago was a very long time. Okay, I would be very careful thinking that way because you might fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. That means you think you're better than them just because there's distance between us. Okay, just so you know, we have a whole generation that's being raised on eating Tide Pods and arguing on the internet, okay? You ever watch TikTok? We're not better. We have no excuse. There's no room for us to brag, amen? Amen, so let's just not, let's just not fall into that trap. But let's just talk a little bit about how Jesus died. He died a death known as crucifixion. It was the most brutal and heinous death known in the history of mankind. It was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. The Romans come along and they saw, oh, look, how nice. The Persians impale people. Let's take it up a notch. And they invented crucifixion. And it's so painful that we actually invented a word to describe it, excruciating, which literally means from the cross. That's what excruciating means. And the Romans were the most barbaric people. They would invade entire cities. They would would pillage. They would rape the women, take the children, and they would sell them into slavery or make them slaves into their own home or into gladiators. Most of the empires, they would actually kill one another and have incest with their family, okay? It was a nasty place, just so you know. It was nasty. And the Romans, they took joy and pleasure from doing all of these things. And they were the ones who crucified Jesus Christ. And they divided it into three categories. The first place they would do it is they would bring you to the center of the city and openly, publicly, they would flog you. And they would do it with the flagomer or a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that was made of hooks and bone and metal ball bearings that would tenderize the flesh, tie you to a post, and fillet the flesh off of your back, exposing the muscles, the nerve endings, the tendons, even down to the spine itself. Some historians say that the hook on the, on the whip would actually catch a rib cage and they would rip it off of the person's sternum. That's how painful crucifixion and flogging would be. If a person survived that, which most didn't, they would drag them through the city with a 100-pound Roman crossbar across their exposed back. But Jesus, being an able-bodied man, he did not lose his strength, and he makes his way to the place of his crucifixion where they lift him up, and they pull his arms out of their sockets... And they drive nine-inch railroad spikes through the most painful centers of the human body, the hands and the feet. And when we see portraits of Jesus hanging on the cross, you know how typically they have the nail going through the front of the foot? They say that's probably not accurate. Most likely, they would drive the nail through the ankle bone, and they would hang by their Achilles tendon. And they would hang up there for days. But when they would lift the person up as they're nailed to the cross, they would drop them 
into their place of execution. And as they fell under the weight of their own body, their internal nervous system They would go into convulsions and be basically set on fire. And as they landed in that spot, they would lose control of their bodily functions and bowels and defecate and urinate on themselves. And this is how they would hang for days. But the death of crucifixion was not due to shock or pain. It was actually due to asphyxiation. Because as the person is weeping and bleeding and crying and urinating and defecating on themselves, they are swallowing their own blood and vomit till it fills up their lungs and eventually they drown in their own bodily fluids. Jesus died. The Romans made sure of this. The Romans did not make a mistake. They did not have an accident This was not a medical mystery because the Bible also records that they took a spear just to ensure Jesus was dead and drove the spear through his side, rupturing his heart. And as they pulled the spear out, blood and water flowed through the side. Jesus really died. Point number three, Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find. In the Bible, there's 300 prophecies about the life of Jesus. 200 prophecies deal with the second coming of Jesus, which we're going to talk about next week as we dive back into the book of Mark, and we'll finish Mark this summer. 200 prophecies are about the second coming of Jesus. Next week, we're going to have a series starting about the rapture. Come back. That's going to be fun. Okay, Just so you know, it all makes sense looking around, doesn't it? (laughs) Jesus is coming again soon. And so the first coming, 100 prophecies about Jesus. And one of those prophecies is from a man named Isaiah 700 years before. And here's what Isaiah writes. He was cut off from the land of the living, dead, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Question, was Jesus rich or poor? It's not a trick question. Jesus was poor. Say, how do you know Jesus was poor? Well, he couldn't pay his taxes. So he had him and his buddies go down fishing, hoping to pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. Like, you know, you're broke when you're like, I don't know. Let's just go down the docks and see if a, a perch has a credit card. I mean, that's, that's all we got, right? I mean, he was so poor that he had to feed 5,000 people by taking a little boy's Lunchable, right? He's just pray over. He's like, let's see. And then he just feeds all these people, right? That's how Jesus was so poor, he had 12 roommates, right? Single dudes, right? You're like, hey, me and my 12 roommates are going to get a one-bedroom apartment. Like, that's how you know you're broke, right? We have 12 roommates, and you each pay $55 for rent, okay? That's Jesus. He was broke. Some of the college guys are like, oh, no, that's my life, right? Hey, just, you got something in common with Jesus, all right? So Jesus was poor. That might be the only thing you got in common, but that's something, okay? So Jesus was poor, but yet he was buried with a rich man. How is that possible? Joseph of Arimathea, he was a follower of Jesus upon his death. He gifted Jesus his tomb. So everybody knew where Jesus was buried because the tomb was easy to find. It mentions his actual name. And so Jewish people kept meticulous records, and the Romans kept good records as well. If you did not believe in the resurrection, you could go to the county clerk, and you could say, hey, where's Joseph's tomb? And they would tell you, and then you would go roll the stone away and be like, oh, look, Joseph and Arimathea's tomb, right? There's no body here because the tomb was easy to find. 
In fact, it was so easy to find that the Romans put a soldier outside to make sure that there was no insurrection or rebellion. The Jewish leaders were afraid, and so they put other leaders outside of that tomb as well. But listen to me. There was no need of an insurrection because there was a resurrection. The tomb was easy for them to find. The next point that we read is this is that he, the first eyewitnesses were women. This one's probably my favorite because if you're gonna make something up, you wouldn't do something as embarrassing as the Bible records. Say, how does the Bible record this to be embarrassing? Because it says the first eyewitnesses were women. In that day, women weren't afforded the privileges and the equality that they are afforded today. Women couldn't own property. Women couldn't have their own business or their own income. And women's testimony was not allowed within a courtroom. And so if you're going to present a case about Jesus being resurrected from the dead, you would not have a woman to be the one who testifies against that. You would actually have a religious leader, maybe a rich person, maybe a Roman authority. You would not choose women to be the first eyewitnesses. But that's exactly what we see in the Bible. And here's the reason why. It's because the Bible is more than just good news. The Bible is also true news. That the Bible doesn't exaggerate. It doesn't have to exaggerate. The Bible doesn't manipulate. It doesn't have to manipulate because the Bible is true. And it records what happened. And the truth is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that, then you can go ask the ladies in the room because the ladies here would testify. Jesus is alive. Ladies, amen. Can I hear it from the ladies? Men, you need to listen to the women. Men, you need to listen to your wife, okay? Because, because they know the truth, right? That's how I'm here at church. 15 years ago, a cute girl invited me to church. Her name is Ashley. She's now my wife, okay? So listen to the women because they know what they're talking about. They're the reason we're here, amen? Amen. Okay, Jesus' first eyewitnesses were women. Number five, Jesus physically appeared alive after death. Right now, some of you are thinking, okay, Pastor Byron, that's nice and good and all. Seems like you've read some books. It might even sound like you dropped $30,000, $40,000 on a college education. Good for you. But that's really just your opinion. No, it's not. Because our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is established by fact. Amen. The resurrection is a fact. And for those of you who are not yet ready, and you're feeling a little hostile, getting a little randy, I want you to understand something, that you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. You can have your opinion. That's fine. But just admit it's opinion and it's not based on facts. If you don't want to follow Jesus, that's on you. But you can't prove that. The burden of proof is on you. And you are entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. The truth is the truth, regardless if you believe in it or not. I don't care where you went to college. Two plus two always equals four. I don't care what you read about truth being relative on social media or all of the woke friends you have who say, oh, that's your truth. You just live your truth, girl. Don't worry about it. Truth is truth. Truth is truth. To deny truth is to deny reality. 
Truth is what corresponds with reality. To deny truth is to deny reality. And you're entitled to your own opinions. But you're not entitled to your own facts. And the fact is that Jesus really rose. And one of the reasons that we can believe that is this, is because he physically appeared after his death. Physically. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance. People want to argue about a lot of things. Well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? Quit changing the subject. What do you believe about the resurrection? Well, I just can't follow Jesus because of this. I just can't become a Christian because of this. I didn't ask you about those things. I asked you about the resurrection. Quit changing the subject. This is of first importance. No matter what you think, no matter what you've done, no matter where you went to school, no matter what people told you, no matter what you've read, no matter what your opinion is, those are second importance. Third importance, 44th importance, the most important thing is what do you believe about the resurrection? This is the most important thing. I delivered unto you a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, we're going to talk about him in a sec, and then to the 12, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living. Paul says, if you don't believe me, you can go ask because they're still alive. They saw it. They'll tell you. I want you to understand something, that the Bible was actually written within a, a 10 to 15 year window of the resurrection of Jesus. You say, well, it's just an outdated, antiquated book, Okay. No, this is a living and eternal book, and it's timeless, therefore it's always timely for us. The first book of the Bible in New Testament to be written was the Gospel of Mark. Again, we're going to finish Mark this summer. And it was inspired by a man named Peter, who was the leader of the disciples. And Mark writes, within the first 10 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, he writes, within the first 10 years, documented, I witnessed, I saw this. Paul comes along, and about 10 years later, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, which is the longest treatise over the resurrection in the New Testament. This is a 10-year window that they're writing these things. And we also have the earliest recorded manuscript of the Gospel of Mark is in the 80s. Not the 1980s with Kaja Juju and Take On Me, not that 80s. Some of y'all, thank God we're not in the 80s anymore, right? 80s. Now, let me just put this in perspective for you. Let's say I were to get up here and preach a sermon and say, 9-11 never happened. You can also find that video on YouTube too. 9-11 never happened. It's all a myth. What would you say to me? You're crazy. No, 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 it didn't happen. I'll take you to ground zero right now, and I'll show you ground zero. Twin towers are gone. I don't believe you. What would you, what would you say? You're crazy, right? That was 20 years ago, and it's ingrained in the collective conscience of us as Americans. Mark and Paul are writing within 10 years. If they wanted to discredit them, they could have done that. But yet they could not discredit them because they have a testimony and a witness of Jesus being alive physically appeared to them following the resurrection. He says, don't believe me, go ask. 
They're there. They'll tell you. I mean, one of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 24, whenever Jesus resurrects and he goes and he has a Bible study with two men on the road of Emmaus. That's really cool. I mean, he goes to his disciples and he says, hey, touch the hands in my feet, right? Go ahead and touch them, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm real. I'm physically appeared. I am a, alive. I mean, one of my, my favorites is whenever Jesus, he goes back into town and he sits down with his friends. He's like, hey, what's for breakfast? Like, you know, you had a long weekend when you want some breakfast, amen? That's Jesus. He wants to eat some breakfast. And here's where this is so incredibly important for you to understand. For those of you who have all of the reasons why you can reject the Christian faith, and one of those would be that Christians stole it from the Greeks. Oh, we just invented it from the Greeks. We went and read a history book about Horus or Osiris, and we just made up all of this myths about eggs and crosses and sunrise and all that stuff. Not true. Because the Greeks held to what is a Platonic dualism. The whole goal of Greek philosophy was to get rid of the body and set free the soul. That the body was bad and the soul was good. And basically the, the body was like the cocoon and the soul is where you become a butterfly and you float off into the afterlife. They had no concept of a resurrection. In fact, Homer, which would have been the Greek version of the Bible, he says the resurrection is not even a thing. Don't even think about it. But yet here comes Jesus, the resurrection life, physically appeared with his body not discarding his body, not leaving the body in the tomb and having a spiritual apparition that goes walking in town. No, it's the soul and the body resurrected together. This is not Greek. This is Christian. This is what the Bible teaches, a, a physical resurrection. And then he says, there's 500 people who would testify that Jesus evidenced himself for 40 days, crowds upwards of 500 brothers. That doesn't even include the women and children. Maybe Jesus was in church with a packed room like this, and he was preaching sermons to thousands of people for 40 entire days. Paul says, go ask him. They'll tell you. They saw him with their own eyes. And then some people would say, oh, no, 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 no. It was a hallucination. Okay, we're in church. Let's just go ahead and have an honest conversation. Time to be vulnerable. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever done drugs. Thank you for being honest. My hand's raised too. I've done drugs. I've done a lot of drugs. <laughs> I've done most of the drugs you've heard of. I've even done some of the drugs you haven't heard of. Done a lot of drugs. Now, for those of, those of you who had the courage to raise your hand, right, let's just talk about hallucinations. You ever hallucinated? I've hallucinated. Now, are hallucinations private events? Private experiences? Yeah. I remember sitting in a room and me and my friends were all tripped out. I'm like, whoa, man, are the walls breathing? Like, do you see Puff the Magic Dragon riding through the thing like that? And my friends are like, nah, bro, that's all you. That's all you, man, man. That's all you, okay? Hallucinations tend to be private, personal experiences. They don't tend to happen for 40 days with crowds upwards of 500 people at a time. Okay, that's not called a hallucination. That's called the truth. You don't invent and make this stuff up. And so whatever you're smoking to come up with that as an excuse to not believe in Jesus, go ahead and put it down, get you a 12-step program or one-step program, come meet Jesus and get in that water today. He'll deliver you from that. Physically appeared. Number, 
I don't even know what count I'm on. Jesus' family worshiped him after his resurrection. That same verse continues, and then it says this. He appeared to James. Who's James? That's Jesus' brother. Some of you are like, Jesus had a brother? <laughs> yeah, and he had sisters. You're like, where's that at in the Bible? It's in Mark chapter 6. Some of y'all are raised Catholic. Welcome to Mass. I'm Father Byron. In a moment, we're going to take the Eucharist and we're going to celebrate baptism, okay? And you're taught the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary never had any kids. Her and Joseph never consummated their vows. But Mark 6, 2 would say that's not true because it says Mary was there along with Jude or Judas, James, Simeon, and his sister. Sister is plural, so Jesus had a large family. And yet what we see is after the resurrection, Jesus' own family begins to worship him as God. James meets Jesus and he says, there you are, big brother, you're alive. And then he worships him. Now, here's my question for you. What would it take for you to worship your sibling as your savior? Like for all of you moms, for all of you moms, Mary was in the early church. She's mentioned in Acts chapter one. She's like laying out the prayer cards and she's like, Yay, Jesus. She's in the early church. Like, she's on the prayer team, okay? Praying to her son. For all of you moms, if your son were to come to you and say, <clears throat> okay, mama, I need you to worship me as the sinless savior of the world and organize a whole church to gather around and talk about how awesome I am. <laughs> would you do that? Would you do that? All the moms would be like, no, I got tennis elbow from spanking you with a wooden spoon when you were a kid. Now get in there and clean your room. That's what the moms would say, right? Not worship your son as God. For those of you who are brothers or sisters, right? I, I would never worship my siblings. Like my, my brother would give me swirlies and wedgies. And one time he pulled a kitchen knife and tried to shank me when we were eight, okay? I'm not worshiping him. Maybe as Satan, but I would not believe him as Savior, okay? That's just not how it works. What would it take for you to worship your son or your sibling as your Savior? A resurrection, okay? So Jesus' own family begins to worship him as God. Here's what we see next. His followers go from cowards to courageous. Peter, right? The day before the crucifixion, he runs away from a little girl denying Jesus. They're like, do you believe in Jesus? He's like, no. Are you a Christian? No. And then a little eight-year-old girl comes up and says, uh, I think I saw you with Jesus one time. And he starts like cussing her out, dropping F-bombs, telling her she's number one but with the other finger and running in the opposite direction, scared of a little girl hiding after the resurrection. They're hiding in the upper room. They are terrified. And yet what we see is in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the history of the church, following the resurrection, Jesus appears to them and he gives them the great commission to go make disciples of all nations and to drop them in that baptism water. And that's what Jesus told them to do. So on Pentecost Sunday, he stands up and he preaches the first sermon of the church. And 3,000 people get saved and get baptized in a single day. And here we are. And 2,000 years later in downtown Beaumont, still rejoicing and celebrating the truth that people 
Peter preached on that first Sunday that Jesus Christ died and he resurrected and Jesus Christ still lives to this very day. He goes from being a coward who denies Jesus to being a courageous man of God who starts the very first church. Cause effect. How do you explain this? Minus the resurrection. What did the disciples have to gain out of this? The answer is nothing. They didn't get rich off of this. They didn't become presidents. They didn't get political power. They didn't have any sort of authority that came out of it. You know what they got out of this? They got murdered. All 12 of the disciples, whom later became apostles, were all martyred for their faith. Thomas, the doubter, the one bad day of Thomas's life. Right? I mean, it would be hard to believe in the resurrection. I mean, right? You're like, hey, Jesus, I had to see it with my own eyes. Okay, that's what it says. And now we're like doubting Thomas over there, right? I mean, cut him some slack. I mean, it was, it was a weird time, okay? But doubting Thomas, he becomes a missionary that goes to the furthest reaches down in the Paramatha region of India. And when he gets there, he plants a church and they run him through with the spear, impale him, and put him on the outside of town. And they say, this is what happens when you follow Jesus. But I want you to know that according to church history, the church that Thomas planted 2,000 years ago today is still celebrating Easter. And it's still in existence. And it's still there to this very weekend today. And that's God's way of saying, Haha, no, this is what happens when you follow Jesus. The blood of the martyrs is the seed for our faith. That God has changed these men and changed women's lives in Internally, moving them from cowards to courageous. How do you explain this? How do you explain the church where it's at today? Some of you are like, I don't believe in organized religion. Have you ever been to church? We ain't very organized. I mean, we have twiddle dee and twiddle dum on staff here, okay? It's like the Three Stooges every week. Larry Curly Moe. Like our church is held together by grace and duct tape, and we're running out of duct tape, amen? Not very organized. How do you explain this? Oh, there is an X factor. It's called the Holy Spirit and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the reason the church continues to grow to this day. Peter goes at the end of his life before the Roman authorities, and they say, We've got you denied Jesus before. We want you to do it again and put a stop to this church. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. I've denied him once, but I will never deny him again. And you can kill me, but I ain't afraid of death. Because Jesus came back and he told me what's waiting for me on the other side. He goes to prepare a place for me. He would not tell me that if it was not true. I have seen my best friend and my Savior conquer death. Do what you want, but you can kill the body, but you can't take my soul. And they crucified him upside down. And yet the church still grows to this day. Cause effect. How do you explain that? Twelve ordinary men single-handedly transforming and changing the world outside of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Number eight. Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. This is my favorite. Okay, I know I told you that the other one was my favorite, but this is my favorite favorite. 
They're all my favorite. You only have to pick one, okay? But this one's my favorite favorite. That his tomb was not enshrined. When you're driving down the road, you see a, a cross on the side of the road. What does that mean? That somebody who was loved passed away there. The family goes there and they memorialize it. They commemorate the place that the person lost their life. My brother died. When I was a little boy, my second brother passed away. And on Easter and family events, when we'd go to my grandparents' house, we'd all go visit my brother's grave. I knew where he was at. We'd go visit. We'd drop flowers down there. Do you have someone that you love who's passed away? What do you do? You, you remember where they're at. You go and commemorate their, their grave. Yet the most beloved figure in all of human history, nobody knows where he's buried. Think about all the major world religions. We know where Abraham is buried. He's buried in Hebron, founder of the Jewish faith. We know where Muhammad is buried, the founder of Islam. He's buried in Medina. We know where the Buddha is buried. He's, he's buried in India. We know where Elvis is buried. He's buried at Graceland. <laughs> they say he's the king, but we have a better king, and nobody knows where our king is buried. There's a, there's, there's, a, there's a scholar named Edwin Yamaguchi, and he's got more degrees than Fahrenheit and more letters than I could pronounce, and he has studied the region, and what he has determined is that during the time of Jesus' life in Palestine, there was 50 major religious leaders, and all of their tombs are enshrined, and yet the most iconic and prolific figure in all of human history, nobody knows where he's buried. Do you know why? Because nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because the grave is not the good news. The good news is that Jesus doesn't need one. Like, you need to understand something. This is what separates Christians from other religions, is that as Christians, we don't worship a place. We worship a person. Every other religion, there's things you have to do. There's places you have to go. There's pilgrimages that you have to make, reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt. You have to pray this many times, give this much money, and you have to go to these holy places. But we don't have holy places because we have the Holy One. His name is Jesus. We don't worship out of place. We worship a person, and his name is Jesus, and nobody knows where Jesus was buried. And here's why I think that's so. It's because they didn't care. If you wanted to meet Jesus, you didn't go to the tomb, you went to the town because that's where he was at. You would sit down, touch the nail-scarred hands and feet, and you would have breakfast with them. You didn't go to the tomb, you went to the town. Nobody cares where Jesus was buried. It was like Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was like a three-day rental Airbnb. Like, that's all it was. It's like, hey, can I check this out for the weekend? Three days later, he folds up his clothes, tosses him back the key, peace out, I'll see you later, and then he goes into town. Because we don't worship a place, we worship a person. How do you explain this? Outside of the resurrection. Which leads to number nine. Two more. Come on, let's go. Y'all with me still? Two more. Change the way that we worship. Here's what the Bible tells us. In Acts chapter 20, verse 2, it says, On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together, they did so to break bread. Paul, he preached to them. For thousands of years through the Old Testament, God's people, they met on what is called the Sabbath, which was a, a Saturday. In Genesis, it tells us, work for six days. Hear that, young single men? Work for six days, and then on the seventh day, you rest. And God's people had followed that pattern for thousands of years since an ancient Near Eastern society. 
And yet Jesus comes on the scene after his death and resurrection. They move from worshiping on the Sabbath or the Saturday to now gathering on a Sunday. This is really important for two reasons. You're like, what's the big deal about that? Two reasons. Number one, have you ever met church folk? We don't like change. Like you could try to like change the color of the wall, but the church is going to split. If they don't play your favorite song, you're going to get an email like something. I can't believe you didn't play Oceans, right? That's how church people are like. You're like, hey, we played that. We're going to retire that song. We're like, I'm never coming back here again, right? I mean, that's how church people are. Like, we complain about everything. And yet what we see here is that church folk, they changed from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday. I want you to understand this. Sunday was a work day. This would be the same thing as me saying, hey, we're going to start having church on Monday morning. So before you drop the kids off and go to work, I want you to come up here at 6 o'clock on Monday morning. Some of you are like, I ain't even a Christian on Mondays. <laughs> I'm not doing that. You say, I need you to come here Monday morning at 6 o'clock, and we're going to have church. How many of you are like, I'm not going? Yeah, I'm not going, right? And some of you are like, I'll go. And we're like, thank you. You're not going. But that's what happened. Cause effect. How do you explain this? And then not only do they begin worshiping on Sunday, the first day, they begin taking communion, gathering together, breaking bread. Communion, which is the broken body of Jesus, the, the bread and the cup, which is the sacraments where we celebrate and remember that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He shed his blood as the atonement, that his blood covers our sins, and he declares us righteous now. And so now we're made righteous in Jesus Christ. And every week we forget that, so we have to take communion to remind ourselves of that. That's the reason we take communion every week here at our church is because we're quick to forget, and we have to be reminded every single week that Jesus died for my sins and that he has called me to be his own every week. We take communion. Today we're going to be doing baptisms. You excited for baptisms? Here's what baptism is. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Through baptism, they begin to celebrate that Jesus really lived, that Jesus really died and he was buried, and that Jesus, he resurrected from the grave. And just as Jesus doesn't need the grave, Jesus buries all of our sin and shame in that grave, and then he resurrects us into a newness of life. This was the early church way of visible showing the declaration of the gospel and the power that it has in their community, that they were baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus was alive and well within their church church. And today we're going to get to join in the 2000 year lineage of the saints. And we're going to celebrate some baptisms today. We're going to see as just as Jesus was buried in that grave and that the grave was to symbolize that Jesus removed sin. So does the water symbolize the removal of our sin. And we're going to celebrate that today because Jesus changed the way that we worship. And some of you here today, you are going to make a decision to follow after Jesus. You're going to give your life to Jesus. You're going to surrender yourself to Jesus. You're going to make that decision. And your church is going to celebrate with you. And we want to partake in this baptism. And some of you today, you came to church and you didn't even know that you were going to get baptized, but you are. You're going to get baptized today. You didn't know you weren't going to get baptized because God didn't tell you. Okay. He knew you wouldn't listen. He knew you wouldn't come. So we tricked you to come here today. 
So that way you can be baptized. So you say, but I don't, have, I, don't have a, I don't have a change of clothes. Don't worry. We got a change of clothes for you. I don't have a towel. We got a towel for you. See, we prophesied into the future. We can see these things. So we have a towel. You say, but my friends aren't here. Here we are. Look around. Here's your new family now. You say, but I, I, want, a, I want a cool picture. I want a cool picture to show on my Instagram. We have a professional photographer, and we are live streaming and videoing all these things. But I don't have a T-shirt. We do. We got a nice nice life change through Jesus T-shirt just for you. And so all of that has been taken care of and thought through. And here's what I would tell you today. I would echo the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians and into Acts chapter 20, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait until tomorrow to do what you know you're supposed to do today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your life to Jesus. Today is the day to surrender yourself to him. Today is the day to admit, to believe, to confess that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. That's what 2020 has taught us. There are hundreds of thousands of people here in America who have lost their lives due to the COVID-19 and they did not have tomorrow be guaranteed for you. Right now, all of Americans are being face-to-face with their own death and their own mortality and their own eternity. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You do not know how much longer you have. You can drink bottled water. You can take vitamins. You can wear a mask and you can get vaccinated and you can still die tomorrow. There is no way that you know when you're time is up. And so quit putting off until tomorrow what you know that you're supposed to do today. I just feel the spirit of the Lord saying there are people in this room who have been putting off a decision to follow Jesus. You've been saying that to yourself ever since you were a teenager. You said, when I turn 18, I'll become a Christian. When I graduate college, I'll surrender my life to Jesus. When I get married, when I have kids, when I have a job, when I turn 30, I'll give my life to Jesus. Maybe when I hit a mid life crisis at the age of 50, I'll give my life to Jesus. And you keep moving the goalpost on your salvation day. And the Lord Jesus has brought you here because he knows that today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your life to Jesus. Today is the day that everything in your life begins to change. Do not put off till tomorrow what you know that you're supposed to do today. If you know you're supposed to be baptized and you've been delaying it and putting it off, then you need to get up in just a moment and respond and get in those baptism waters. If you know that you're supposed to surrender your life to Jesus, you know by the evidence of the grace you feel the spirit of God inside of your heart moving and tugging you right now. Do not put off until tomorrow what you know that you're supposed to do today. Surrender your life to him. Surrender yourself to him. Devote yourself to him. Admit, believe, confess that Jesus is Lord of your life and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Which leads to number 10. Jesus is still changing lives to this very day. He changed my friend's life after this conversation with less yelling. But I got to see her join a small group, get on a serve team, I got to see her grow in her faith. I got to see what life on the other side of resurrection looks like. I get to see her as the anxiety in her heart began to settle. 
the depression in her mind began to lift. The relationships around her began to change. I began to see her finances differ as she put God first in her finances, first in her life, first in her thoughts. And I got to baptize my friend. And I want to do the same thing for you too. Jesus is still changing lives. And I can sit here and I can present to you all this information, but at the end of the day, you have to make your own decision. That's on you. And I want you to understand something. Is that Jesus didn't come just to live in our history. Jesus also wants to live in our hearts. Because he changes lives. Your life can change. My life changed. 15 years ago, my conversion story began sitting in a jail cell. I had gotten arrested for all those drugs I talked about earlier. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a jail cell, and my praying godly grandmother comes and visits me in jail, and she hands me this Bible. As I'm sitting there in a jail cell, I just begin reading and reading and reading it. And what I discovered is what I'll encourage you with this today is that this is not just true news, it's good news. And the good news is that this news is true. In a world filled with so many lies and so much deceit and so much fake news, so much bad news, there's one place and one person we go to receive true good news. As I began reading this Bible, it set me on a trajectory that began to change my life. And I made a decision to follow Jesus. Me and my wife were baptized shortly after that. And every single Sunday, whenever you come to redemption, I, this is the actual Bible my grandmother gave me while sitting in jail. And I preach out of it every single week because it reminds me of this. Jesus changes lives. He changed my life. He can change your life. It reminds me that if God can reach me in a jail cell, God can reach you in a church chair. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, what you're going through, what you have done, Jesus still saves. Jesus still heals. Jesus still forgives. Jesus still transforms and changes lives just like yourself. So here's what Romans 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your hearts, not just in history, but if you believe in your hearts, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one is confessed and saved. And here's what the scripture says. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That word everyone, that includes you. Say, everyone means... Everyone means everyone. You say, but, 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 but what about? No, everyone means everyone. Everyone means you. What, does everyone mean most? No, everyone means everyone. What about almost? No, everyone means everyone. What about, what about me? Yes, everyone includes you. Everyone who believes in him will 
be saved and will never be put to shame. You can bank on this. You can count on this. You can be assured by this. You can put your hope and trust and faith in this because the good news is true news that Jesus is alive, that Jesus conquered death, that Jesus forgives sins, that Jesus wants to and can do and will do a wonderful work in your life. If you give your life to Jesus today, if you give yourself to Jesus today, he will give himself to you as well. Let's celebrate this good news. The good news that Jesus lived. The good news that Jesus died. The good news that Jesus resurrected from that grave and stand up with me, redemption. The good news is that Jesus is alive. He is alive. He is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen in.